Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy, and I'm here with my first cup of coffee. I'm technically my third at this point because I just met at a local coffee shop, Cafe Fina, with the lovely Emily Ma Tippetts. <laughs> Say hello, Emily. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Today is Monday, November 20th, 25th. 25th. Thank you. <laughs> I forgot to study ahead of time. I, You know, my father's birthday was yesterday so ah so so for the next few days i will remember the date. <laughs> <laughs> not past wednesday though we had thought about having our interview over coffee at cafe fina but it was mobbed yeah it's a very popular place which i wouldn't have necessarily expected on a monday during during work hours yeah, yeah. I, I don't know you know maybe people are already kicking into the thanksgiving holiday but yeah well or you, one of the families we sat near i happen to know the um breadwinner is a nurse who works overnight so uh and there were a bunch of kids there and stuff yeah. so they were occasionally shrieking and so forth as children are wont yes. to do which, <laughs> which they should be allowed to do but isn't great for podcasts it's true so emily is being my special celebrity guest today uh she recently released the third book yes. in a paranormal romance yes. trilogy right and so tell us about that. So this uh, paranormal romance trilogy is called The Sunrise Prophecy. Um, and it's, I, I joke that instead of being urban fantasy, it's rural fantasy. And everybody can laugh at how I say the word <laughs> rural. Um, because it actually takes place in Taos, New Mexico. Um, and I, it's actually an idea I've had incubating for probably about eight or nine years uh, that I finally sat down and, and wrote the trilogy for. And um, it does have vampires. I won't go too much into detail of all the other different kinds of supernaturals that are in it because a lot of the reveals um, in the plot have to do with discovering what what the rest of that world contains. It is YA and um, it is sweet romance. Um, and that's pretty much square. That means my no own. sex. No. Right. Yeah. And in this <laughs> one, there's actually no sex or when um, novels I have where obviously people are having sex um it's happening off screen um that's just always been my my happy places you know when writing about i i'm the kind of person who loves writing about setting up that first kiss that's that's really where, where i find the most interesting to sort of explore how it is you get that great you know the the great meet cute moment or the great first kiss or the you know even the first sex scene i'm i'm the one who's real interested in what goes into that building that moment and so the three books, are they the same hero, heroine throughout? Yes. So um, what these books are is I, me creating a world, a nice big playground for myself to be, keep on writing these sort of urban fantasy paranormal romances. I don't know that I'll do many more trilogies. I think from here on, I'll just be doing standalones that take place in that world. Um, I'm writing in such a way that you don't have to read them in any particular order. Uh, but this trilogy was basically just to set up that world. And so it is a lot of world building. And uh, the world that you begin with, which is just sort of Taos, New Mexico, and our modern day world, it looks very different by the end of that trilogy. And one thing I can um, talk about is that it, uh, they find out that we live in a sort of multiverse, and so there's portaling. Um, everything happens in our regular our world in these books but it's to it was to give myself a nice big playground to give myself a lot of other cool places to go and future future projects cool yeah the main characters are um so it's young adult 
and by the end of the trilogy, it's um, they're the age of new adult. So um, the characters start out at uh, 17, 18, and by the end, they're just out of college. And you're native to New Mexico, right? I grew up here. So I actually moved here um, a couple weeks before my first birthday. But I grew so up... that's almost native. Almost, well, except New, New Mexico does have people that are literally native. You know, I mean, so by Anglo standards, I've been here forever. <laughs> but, but, you know, you, there's there's two other populations in New Mexico who find that adorable. Because <laughs> um, it's got the Hispanic population that's been here for 600 years. Oh, and yeah, the indigenous but, population has been here for thousands of years. Of course. But, yeah. you but know, for I, those of us Anglophones, that's a long time. <laughs> yes. just, just one lifetime is a long time. to be. And here. I'm not sure that... Uh... I, we're both very familiar with Wyoming also. Yes. Because you, your husband is from well, Wyoming. Both of our husbands are from Wyoming. Yes. Yeah. Which is kind of odd. That, yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that's a, a weird little Venn diagram <laughs> yeah. overlap. Yeah. So, uh, but, and I lived in Wyoming for over 20 years, you know, and of course there people are always trying to establish your cred, right? Yeah, right. You know, and like how many years have you lived in Wyoming and right. you only get a certain, you're only allowed to have certain opinions if you've lived there a certain amount oh. of time and people are always sort of like parsing. Right. You know, and I've just never thought what what's the difference between being born in a place and moving there before your first yeah, birthday? Yeah. You know, it's like all of your all of my conscious memories. life. Yeah. Yes, you're, you, are a, you are a New Mexican that yeah. way. So, but you grew up in Los Alamos. I right? grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and I I left to go to school and things like that. Um, so you know, all told, I've lived in the UK for eight years, and that's really the only other place I've lived sort of long term. Which is very different from New Mexico. Just a bit, yeah, yeah. just a bit. <laughs> um, and you know, I went to LA for law school, but really, the the place that I've always called home, the the license plates on my cars have always been New Mexico. And Los Alamos is kind of a different town, right? It is very different. It's kind of different from everywhere. Um, Los Alamos is where the Manhattan Project took place and built the uh, atomic bomb, and it still is a national laboratory. And so, yes, my father and my husband do both work in, in the nuclear weapons industry, which I understand is, a, you know, an unusual thing. Um, but that's, that's always been my life and my reality. Um, so Los Alamos is, it's got a lot of characteristics that make it more like a military base. Than um than your typical small town. Very orderly. It is very orderly, and it's incredibly tight knit. Uh, people often get the impression that Los Alamos is a lot smaller than it is, uh, just because it is so tight knit. And there's a lot of factors behind that. I mean, I think it definitely helps that everybody has had a security background check, mm -hmm. so the level of public trust is incredibly high. Right. <laughs> you know, for example, you know, a friend of mine was uh, calling around, called the wrong number to ask a friend to pick her child up from school. And the, the wrong number her answered said, oh, no, the, this is not so-and-so. But I, I'm happy to help pick your child up from school. If you're, and I'll come pick you up if you're if you're uncomfortable with, with that. And that's a pretty typical Los Alamos interaction. So it's just got real deep community bonds. So why didn't you set your books in Los Alamos? Why Taos? I wanted to um, show more of the the indigenous and um old new mexican cultures ah. and um los alamos is a little bit removed from that it's pretty much an anglo town i mean so you can kind of the new mexico thinks of itself as having three cultures and, and generally what it is is it's the indigenous culture that was here um first then the spanish um settlers conquistadors conquistadors <laughs> and and here in new mexico 
you know, people outside New Mexico will say Hispanic or Latino or whatever, but um, people here will call themselves Spanish, right. and they're not wrong. These are the, some of them don't necessarily have Spanish bloodlines, but they are descended from people who chose to be Spanish. Right. So indigenous families that chose to become subjects of the Spanish crown and, and things like that. And then the third wave was when um, New Mexico joined the United States, so you get a bunch of Anglophones, and um, so you know we're referred to as Anglo and. Los Alamos is pretty purely Anglo in its culture. That's not to say that everybody who lives there is Anglo, but that is very much the dominant culture. You pretty much only hear English on the street. And um, there's a lot of new immigrants. And so one of the funny things about Anglo is your home language could be like Dutch or Hindi. And you're like half Chinese? I'm half Chinese. Right. But, you know, but by New Mexico standards, you're an Anglo. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You're um, not Spanish. You're not Native American. And Taos is—it's uh, got a Native American pueblo and it's the oldest. Oh, continu- a World Heritage Site. A World Heritage Site. It's the oldest continually inhabited um, structures in, in North America, and it also then was an artist colony. Um, and it's got a lot of the—it's got a lot of very old Spanish families as well. And so Taos, I just thought was a really good place to set it because a, it's got those three cultures so clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very cool. And I was going to ask you something, and now I've forgotten it. I was going to take you back around to... Oh, about Los Alamos. Um, Taos and Los Alamos are in... For all that they're close to each other, they're very different kinds of climates, too. I think one of the things that a lot of people, when they picture Los Alamos, I think they're thinking more of, like, Alamogordo Mm -hmm. and White Sands National Monument... Uh, I had a friend who wrote an urban fantasy and she had her heroine arrive in Los Alamos mm-hmm. in the book and like land at this barren runway yes. in the middle of the desert yeah. and all of this. And I mean, the book had been published by the time we came, by the time we became friends, but she came out to visit me and I said, so we're going to actually go to Los Alamos, <laughs> which is a little mountain ski town. A it's, little mountain ski it's, town. It's, yeah. it's up in the, in the mountains. It's got tall pines. Right. Yeah. It's, um, it is desert, but it's semi-arid desert. So it's actually can get very green and, um, yeah, we us go to ski area. <laughs> so, yeah, I drove her up there and she's like, I got this really, really wrong, didn't I? <laughs> there are even documentaries about Los Alamos. You know, obviously there's been a few of them charting the Manhattan Project quite often shoot in places like Alamogordo. Right. And so there's a good reason why people think that. People also, you know, it's an incredibly small community that do these top secret government things. And so a lot of people will conflate like Los Alamos, Roswell, Area 51, you know, an Area 51 right. is just flat Nevada desert. Right. And yeah. the, the blast testing sites. Yes. Yeah, and then, of course, there's also Sandia Labs down in Albuquerque. Down in Albuquerque, which I, Spanish speakers will find funny. But it's because the mountains were named the Watermelon Mountains for the color of the beautiful sunsets over them. And you can tell the people who named the lab didn't necessarily know Spanish. So we have Watermelon National Laboratories. <laughs> Albuquerque, <laughs> which is a very sweet name for yeah. what they actually do. For yeah, doing they do a lot of the delivery systems for the inks. So <laughs> yeah. So, how did you go from being a lawyer, mm-hmm. or at least to law school? Did you practice law? I practiced law for about six years. So uh, the deal, what kind of law? I so in New Mexico, it's a small population. It's only two and a half million people in the entire state, and there's. But of course, There's Wyoming's few- like 500,000. Oh, yeah. So, you yeah. know, it so, yeah. um, feels populous to me. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's few, there are few enough lawyers and um, few enough legal problems that it's hard to specialize as much as you can in a, a more uh, denser uh, uh. population. And so I pretty much did anything that I didn't have to go to court 
before. So I did a lot of like real estate and contracts and um, leases and school laws, school law advising um, schools on you know, legal issues and things like that. Um, and so I, I worked for the largest firm in the state for a few years. And then I went, I, I married a guy from Los Alamos. And that's how I ended up back in the orbit of Los Alamos. Um, and so I, for a while, um, had my own sole practice and I did a, a lot of estate uh, planning and I did a lot of literary estate planning because mm. my social circle was um, mostly writers. Um, but writing was always the plan. That's always what I wanted to do. Um, I'm from a family that very much values education and having a profession. And so, you know, the deal was, and it's, I understand I got a really good deal in life and who I got for her parents, but they wanted me to get a professional degree so that they knew that I would be able to support myself. And once I had that credential. Now, and I have to stop and ask you, it's your dad who's Chinese, right? My father's family is from China. And then my mother's um, father is from Italy. Oh, okay. So I, I'm, I'm very much of, of immigrant stock. Okay. But yeah. you don't have like the Chinese tiger mom. No. No. No, I've got the Italian. Um, the Italian, not whatever sure. the Italian yeah, whatever version the Italian, is. Yeah, the, you know. <laughs> it's the, that's, isn't that like the Abu Danza yeah. mother? Don't, you know? don't stand too close when she's angry because of the two gestures and you might get whacked kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, um, but I did very, I was very much raised with the immigrant, um, sensibility of you take advantage of all of the opportunities of the United States. Mm. Um, and, and, um, you set yourself up as, as best you possibly can. But as when I finished law school as a graduation present, my parents paid my tuition at Clarion West. So I went straight from law school, drove up the coast and went to Clarion West, um, which is a workshop for science fiction and fantasy. And I just, I continued to work on my fiction all the way through the early days of my legal career. So wait, how did that pivot happen? I mean, was, was that a plan all along? Yeah. So I, um, I, I had always been sort of writing during the time that I was in school. Um, I, I know a lot of people like to romanticize the idea, like, oh, if I don't write every day, I go crazy. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the person is destined to be a writer. I actually do have a very mild form of OCD. Um, but it did mean that I was, basically what it was, was that because I was going to be writing anyway, I really wanted to be able to get good enough at it that I could make money. So I didn't have this incredibly time-consuming hobby <laughs> that, you know, just sort of just took up time. And and I love um and I do love um, fiction, and I do love the written word. Um, even in law, that was a lot of the appeal. And um, I, you know, it's that story of when you don't know what you don't know, it's amazing what you can accomplish. I applied to Clarion West my third year of law school, not realizing that I'm up against people with like MFAs and things like that. And uh, freakishly, I got in. <laughs> well, I don't think freakish, freakishly, but, right? I mean, well, I mean, once, once I was there, though, um, my um, class at Clarion, a good number of them were already pro-published before they went to Clarion. And those right. of us that didn't have a pro sale called ourselves the Nada Crew. <laughs> and over the years, after we finished Clarion, um, the Nada crew kept diminishing, and I was the last Nada. <laughs> yeah. A dubious so, distinction. Yeah, I mean, hey, it doesn't... And I never really minded that. I mean, I, I, I never necessarily did what came easily to me in life, so I really, I've never needed to be the best at what I do. I'm quite comfortable being in the room with people who are better than me and i mean one of the things about clarion west is i think it was kind of a, I, I think i got some 
you know, had one of the best experiences and got the most out of it because everybody else was so far ahead. And, you know, because I went to Clarion with um, Susan Yee, who wrote the Angel Fall books, and E.B. Zoboy, whose um, last book was reviewed in the New York Times. And she's actually been back to teach at um, at Clarion West. And um, Connie Willis was one of Connie teachers. Willis was one of my teachers. Yeah. But, you, you know, the other students even, I mean, Ben Rosenbaum, whose first week story got nominated for a I don't know if it was both of you going to Nebula, but yeah, it was up for at least one of those major awards. And I was in a very, very um, accomplished class. And do you you recommend it? Yes, I do. Um, It, especially if you want to kickstart your education in writing. And obviously it's the kind of thing you're never going to stop learning Mm -hmm. in this field, but it's a good way to just really put you through your paces, give you a good idea of um, what you know and what you don't know and what you need to work on. And even, you know, 18 years later, yeah, I was in the class of 2001, you know, it still forms a foundation of, well, I know I need to work on this. So, so you said you were the last nada, you were, submitting work to like agents and editors and didn't Mm -hmm. hit was that yeah i mean i um so from clarion west again i i know i've been very very lucky from clarion west i moved back here to new mexico not realizing that um how many science fiction writers that were here in new mexico it's it's kind of astonishing kind of kind of got a cluster here yes (laughs) um and so i was invited to join critical mass which is a local crit group i work very well in critique groups that that they really benefit me every writer is different um but i that's where i really thrive so i ended up in a critique group um and i and i was carpool mates with george r R. martin so i would drive him to crit group and um so i was still receiving this fabulous education um while i was submitting around and my first sale was finally a short story to a to an anthology so i i I worked very hard on short stories i'm still not good at them um they're a very particular art and craft i think different than novel writing well steve sterling um and makes the analogy that they're like trying to get a cat into a Coke bottle without breaking bones. And, and I, that, <laughs> Steve Sterling, who writes as S.M. Sterling. Right, as S.M. Sterling. I, yeah, name dropping, I know. But um, oh, that's, we're all about yeah, name dropping yeah. here at Jeffy's First Cup of Coffee. Right? So. Yeah. Um, so I, I now am to the point where I can write short stories that I think I could say with confidence are fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably never ever going to be up for a major award for any of my short stories um, my novel writing career took some really interesting twists and turns um, while I was still working in the trenches of trying to establish myself as a science fiction and fantasy writer I decided to um, sell a romance novel to a small press in the LDS uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um, market uh, simply because it's a smaller market it's a little it's, it was a little bit easier um, to get published in and and so I did that um, and that small press experience taught me that I actually knew a lot more about publishing than I realized. I knew a lot more about publishing than a lot of the people who worked at that small press. So I, I parted ways with them, and I still had a couple of romance novels, and decided. And indie publishing took off. This is like at the end of 2011, and I just kind of thought, well, I don't, you know, I'm not really out to become a romance writer, but if I self-publish these um, novels, there's nothing I'm going to learn from indie publishing that is not going to help me across the board. 
And so I uploaded those novels. And I, the, I know the way I tell the story is like, oh, I uploaded them, you know, and for what the heck. I did also work my butt off and try to learn. Well, you have a to... very analytical mind. And you know, right. I mean, you've learned how to teach yourself to do a thing. And... Yeah. And I mean, it, and I figured that um, I this was a chance to, to test how much difference I could make to my own career by um, handling my own publicity. Uh, because, you know, while we all dream of being in a situation where the where our publisher or handles our publicity or we have a publicist, um, how getting there could sometimes require building that platform for yourself. So I used it as a chance to sort of see how well I could do with that. And it, it succeeded far beyond my wildest imaginations. And so that's how I ended up writing contemporary and romance for a good chunk of years there. And so it's in the last couple of years that I've been trying to buy myself a plane to get home, basically, but back to science fiction and fantasy and um so i like that analogy <laughs> so, good metaphor um and so publishing this um trilogy i um paranormal is one of the genres that um indie publishing tends to do very well it's still very indie dominated and so that's why i, I publish these independently um i'm also working on a novel that will i'll be submitting around to agents and editors oh. and and jeff and i were talking about this about getting putting multiple irons in the fire and you know <laughs> and um you know most people will tell you in a structured way you put a lot of irons in the fire and see which heats up the fastest whereas jeffy and i are like yeah realistically you put a lot of irons in the fire and then your hair catches on fire and you're running around saying <laughs> <laughs> why is my hair on fire <laughs> all right but as you know as one of my friends says these are the problems you dream of having Right. When you're just so stressed out, like, oh, I've got all these book deadlines. And, you know, because right. when that's your dream, that's um, that's the problems you dream of having. Yes. And yet, and, and this is something I say to a lot of people, it doesn't change the fact that there's still problems. Yes. You know, the, you know yes, there are champagne problems, mm -hmm. as some people call them, you know, mm -hmm. but at the same time, they're, they're still real and stressful. Well, and I know writing and the arts are often careers that people sort of dream about. Um, the dream doesn't necessarily match the reality Work is work. Yeah, I mean, I'm still not living in my Mediterranean villa and, you know, sipping champagne and eating bonbons while I mow my I next book. I, do, I don't wake up in the morning just full of creative energy and I sit down and, you know, just converse with my characters and all of these things. I mean, um, I know I'll be name dropping it, but the last um, con, con I went to, um, you and I were both at, it was my high con, and Connie Willis was talking about how she's... Um, She's pretty much done with her latest novel. Um, she was in a panel where people were... I forget what the specific thing was. They said something like, you need to deliver on the promises you make to the reader on the first page. And then so she spent that night sort of freaking out going, well, what promises did I make or whatever? And I was like, Connie, you know, you're already a grandmaster. Like... You don't need to worry about this advice. Well, we're just joking. It's like, so it never ends, basically. You're never to the point right. where you're so confident that, I mean, because that's the kind of thing that I, I'll i think, well, I'm freaking out, but of course, I'm still sort of a beginner. I, I mean, I even after almost 20 years, I still consider myself a beginner. But, you know, the, these problems never do go away. It's right. always going to be work. It's always, you always know that you could do better. And one of my writing friends pointed out to me that if we didn't worry about the book, being mm -hmm. terrible and you know right. and right. not doing then you know we wouldn't be pushing ourselves and we wouldn't be yeah trying to create our, exactly our best effort and, yeah. Um, yeah so and you are to uh stick with our theme although we're about out of time mm -hmm. it's been an interesting conversation but uh you're our pantser 
Sort of. Sort of. Um, so yeah, plotter versus pantser. I, um, I, I will always need to start with a plot, then I don't necessarily follow the plot. I guess I, you know, the other um, dichotomy people talk about is gardener versus architect. I'm a gardener. Which who, I like better. Yeah, I'm a gardener who uses a lot of structure. So you, you know. sort of like outline all of your flower beds and... Right, you know, I build the trellises and things like that, but then sometimes the plants start growing in a different direction. And it's always, to me... Um, Do you get like tomatoes growing in your petunias? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I know... Usually I think I'm doing a flower garden, but end up with a vegetable garden, you know, yeah. kind of a thing. But um, to me, where the magic happens is in the interface between the plotting and the pantsing. You know, it's when, okay, so intellectually I know I need something like this. Now emotionally, what is going to actually satisfy that? It won't be something that I arrive at intellectually. And so how do you find it? You know, I, um, people talk about method acting. I, I do probably... <laughs> method writing. I write a lot of scenes that don't advance the plot that are never going to make it into the book, but I live with my characters. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that as something that somebody cultivates on purpose. I write so many more words than ever make it into the novel. Yeah. But, but that's, that's your process. That's how, and, and I think it's just for me, not very much happens solely in my mind. It all has, has to happen on the page. And so it's just a lot of pages. So uh, I think a lot of people, um, are working out things in their subconscious that my subconscious just doesn't really know how to do. And so living with my characters, that's, I kind of have to watch them just move through the world until they really start talking to me and they warm up to me. And, you know, I know that it's working when even the narrator voice kind of has a, has a character to it. And that's when I know things are flowing, but, um, that's the kind of thing that I think is too easy to romanticize. I mean, people kind of get this idea of like, oh, and then it comes alive. and then, But it, it's it's work to get there. And it's right. work even when it's happening. And it's like, okay, I am totally having fun with and feeling this particular scene. But now I've got to stand back and say, is this scene actually doing something? And does it justify its existence? Or and do it... you do that along the way or after I do that, you're done? I do that along the way and then I a final pass through when I'm done. Yeah, yeah but I, I'm a draft writer in the extreme. I write more drafts than anybody I've ever met. And at this point, I've met a lot of writers. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, well, but that's cool. my work. Well, congratulations on completing the new trilogy. Thank and... you. And congratulations on the Orchid Throne. Oh, and, thanks. Oh. And the next book comes out when? January. Okay. I, I'm in the final 20,000 words, speaking mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. gardening, just trying to coax those blossoms out. And you're, and you're not just, you know, sitting back, sipping brandy. I am not. And, and and <laughs> I, I, somehow this has not manifested in my life, and I thinking, don't know. do I go for that kind of genius move, <laughs> or do, I, <laughs> do uh, I try something even more subtle? <laughs> you know, I was just reading the other day that Danielle Steele, uh -huh. did you know that she writes like she'll write for like 18 hours a day mm. when she's writing a book and she'll go sleep for three or four hours and then come back and she'll do basically and, and she'll just eat at her desk she does uh -huh. her writing like does that whole draft in one intense yep. burst yep. Um, another author that does is abby glines she'll take seven days to write a novel and just do it non -stop. and just do it and then, i mean the first draft of it i mean right yeah it just sounds exhausting to it, me. it is it's intense and it's not Actually, Most, Dorinda Jones does something very similar. Yeah, 
because she does her months and months of detailed outlines. Yeah. And it's usually because she's like past deadline, but I think Mm -hmm. this is her process. I mean, she's like, well, I write a book in a week because I have to because it's two months overdue, but she actually... I think that's how she does it. But well, because like, her outlines are very detailed. Her outlines are tens of thousands of words long. Yes, you know, like a so, hundred pages. Yeah, and yeah. Um, so I would argue that her outlines are kind of her first draft. I would too. Yeah, I would too. So, so. all right. Well, we'll wind it up for today. Um, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it was lovely to have you here. And I'll remind everyone that Jeffy's First Cup of Coffee is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more wonderful romance-themed podcasts at frolic.media slash podcasts. And I hope you all have a wonderful Monday and heading into Thanksgiving week here in the U.S. So I will talk to you all tomorrow. Thank you for being here, Emily. Thank you so much. All right. All of you take care. Bye-bye.